Hey friends, before we dive into the show, I've got something for you. Fellow doctors, entrepreneurs, professionals, busy people in general. Sometimes getting a meal in is difficult and we miss it. It happens, but we need to fuel our body with what it needs to be productive. And let's not forget, eating is important to look after our basic health. I want to tell you about Y Food. It's a balanced, simple and wholesome ready to drink meal. Yes, meal. That means it does keep you full for about five hours, making sure you don't become unproductive or hangry. But also it's packed with 26 vitamins and minerals and a whole 33 grams of protein. They're not joking about when they say a meal. I've dropped their link in the description with a 10% discount code. Check it out. Let's head back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we are with another incredible guest. I'll be honest and say we're big fans. We are with Shiv, who is the co-founder and CEO of Osmosis. I don't think they need an introduction, you know, with an audience of millions of healthcare professional students across the world. It is a massive, massive pleasure to have you on the show today, Shiv. Welcome How are to you? The show. Thank you both for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be invited. Now, um, before we start, many congrats, congratulations on the acquisition from our savior. Thank you. Um, I know you're in London, our hometown, and we're talking about, you know, how hot it is. But you've done many incredible things so far in your career to date, um, which you all know. But we want to take it all the way back to the very beginning, Shiv. You know, when a young Shiv, you know, decided to embark on this journey, study medicine. Um, so if you don't mind, take us all the way to the very beginning. Yeah, no, happy to. So, so I have a very medical-related family. My dad's a retired physician, trained in India then ran a hospital in South Africa. Uh, I was born in Namibia, lived in South Africa. My mom's a physical therapist and my sister's a dentist. So I'm sort of the black sheep because I actually haven't <laughs> finished med school yet, though that's still the plan to go back and finish. Um, and, uh, you know, from a young age, I was surrounded by it. Uh, you know, used to go with my father to the hospital, got really interested both in what he was doing as well as the impact he was having, which to a five-year-old was pretty clear how much his fellow staff colleagues, as well as the, obviously the patients and their family members respected him and found that uh, what he was doing is valuable. Uh, same with my mom with her, with her physical therapy. And so I sort of grew into it. And then when I went to, when we moved to Florida um, in the, the space coast, it's a very high tech place, obviously where they launch rockets and shuttles. So I was surrounded by engineering and science there. So I got really interested in the, how do you combine technology with medicine? Mm. And that's why I decided to go into biomedical engineering in college with the intent to go to med school, which ultimately did, and go into surgical devices, medical devices, that kind of stuff. Mm. Obviously take a bit of a sidetrack with osmosis, <laughs> which we can obviously get into. How old were you when you moved to Florida? About six years old, yeah. Okay, fine. And do you remember your time out when you were with your parents? And did the whole family move together or did you kind of move with your... So that's an insightful question because a lot of immigrants, you know, you always assume it's like one whole like unit moves. Uh, that was one of the challenges growing up was my, my father had to stay in South Africa um, to still make money, right, for, for the family. And so he was doing that. And while my mom was getting, kind of getting trained up for the U.S. physical therapy system. And so it was my mom and me and my sister who moved first spent a year without my basically with my dad coming in and out. Um, uh, and then and then he finally moved, was able to move to the US. Uh, but that, that itself was a challenge because he's, he's a physician. But the US system, you know, whenever a clinician, many of your audience probably are thinking about this, whenever they move across borders, some countries make it very difficult to to become a healthcare professional, uh, which I think is a is a mistake 
but there's it's very complex because there's obviously the brain drain that happens when uh, a country makes it too easy for providers to leave their their home countries and come to your country. So it's just a really interesting thing that we've my family's experienced per, uh, firsthand. Yeah, no, definitely, and it's always interesting to hear the stories and the difficulties people face. I think. When you're native in the country, born in prototype, you're kind of oblivious to the difficulties and struggles families go through. So you are on the coast, kind of rockets and all of that engineering. You don't want to, you don't want to become an astronaut. You still had at the back of your head, you wanted to be a a, a, a clinician. Did that the thought ever occur to kind of go into that industry, being so close to it? Yeah, it's actually a really good question. <laughs> there are a lot of physician astronauts, um, and so one of my oh, role wow. models growing up was is a guy named uh, David Wolf. Dr. David Wolf, I met him. He's a physician, hmm. then went to space multiple times and did research. You know, a lot of a lot of very oh, cool wow. biomedical engineering research um, that NASA and other companies do, including how do you grow, you know, how do you grow organs in space? How do you, you know, obviously hmm. wound healing as well as a, you know the aging process in space in the zero G environment. So I was very interested in that actually. <laughs> um, no, I can't imagine. Yeah, now now with all these movies, Interstellar, Ad Astra, the James Webb oh. Telescope, I'm like, oh man, maybe I should think about that again. <laughs> I know, as in like every child's dream. Obviously, it's after being a doctor, it's kind of you want to be an astronaut. Yeah. But um, no, definitely, and I think it's quite nice you had that exposure. You kind of do your engineering degree, um, and was it soon after you graduated, you went straight into John Hopkins to start your your medical um, schooling. Yeah, so I went I went through uh, four years of undergrad, did biomedical engineering with a minor in health policy, and I applied the hmm. same year, my senior year of college, to medical school and business school at the same time. I and um, okay. uh, I got into Hopkins and HBS and deferred. Uh, so HBS required okay. deferment because anyone considering business school, it's a very good idea to get some real world experience working in teams. Okay. So it isn't just kind of abstract concepts, which is kind of going one year out the other. Um, you go in with the experience that you've had a team, whether that's a nonprofit, a sports mm. team, a company, et cetera. Um, but then med school, the de decision to defer med school year um, was largely because I'd been working nonstop since I was in elementary mm. school. Um, and then mm. I had this bucket list of things I wanted to do physically. Uh, I wanted to going back to space and aerospace medicine. <laughs> I, um, uh, my two of my best friends from high school, Casey and Ian are commercial pilots and they taught me how to fly. I got oh, a wow. private pilot license. So basically took this bucket <laughs> list year of like, okay, I'm going to go to yeah. med school. Let me take time off, re you know, live with my, I live, moved back home. I live with my family, which was wonderful. You know, my dad and my mom and I had wonderful walks on the beach, uh, pretty often mm -hmm. and, um, took the gap year. Then I went to, went to, uh, went to med school. No, definitely. I'm glad you said that. I think, I don't know how it is in America, but in the UK, there's this rush to kind of get through medical school, medical training, become a consultant, and there's never a break. And I think, as you can imagine, after COVID, a lot of trainees are taking a year out just to do things they enjoy, just to get chill back. Um, so it's glad that you had kind of that mindset. What keeps the fire alive, though? That's an important question, because I can imagine you you've got all you must have had a lot of job offers come your way at that point what what steered you away and said you know what i'm gonna stick to my dream my mission my goal of i want to complete med school i want to go to med school yeah it's a, it's a really multifaceted answer there i, I definitely envy those uh, people who like kind of know exactly what they want to do hmm. um, i just read this great book chasing my cure by david fagenbaum who i, I recommend he's a hmm. professor at penn md mba hmm. um, he's well known for he had a rare disorder in 
while I was in med school called Castleman's disease and basically almost died several times. Um, and uh, his fire obviously comes from the fact that his mom passed away from glioblastoma and he himself almost died many times. So he's committed his life to research and, and medicine. Mm. Nothing that personal for me except being exposed to patients. So I'd say it's mm. multifaceted. Um, healthcare, I love healthcare because it's so meaningful, right? Being led into a patient's mm. um, life in a way that you can actually give them some benefit. Um, so that's one. Number two, curiosity. Science is just really interesting. Um, yeah. It can be very frustrating, mm. obviously, but the curiosity of it is, is intellectually challenging. Um, and number three, I think um, the, you know, it's, it's validating to be uh, in a profession that society cares about. Um, you know, I just, there's a guy who just joined Meta from, uh, from Elsevier and I'm like, how do you do that? Because yeah. you, you go to a company that's like really known now for, uh, contributing to the teenage mental health crisis or these negative things. And, uh, this is one reason I love osmosis and being part of Elsevier. It's very mission driven. You're surrounded by people who like, mm. they care deeply about the mission and the hard, the mm. hard work isn't as hard when you you're with people you love yeah. doing something you love to do. So that's, that's really where the fire yeah. comes from, I think, and it continues yeah. to burn. Definitely. Amazing. So you get into med school, you kind of deferred the MBA. Um, how was that experience? Did it live up to your expectations? Cause you know, it's, it's one thing dreaming to do it and then you're in the, in the midst of it all. How was that period of your life? Actually, no, <laughs> it really sucked. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it, you know, most med schools are pass fail the first year or two years. So it wasn't yeah. that difficult um, to to pass fail, right? Just to pass. Whereas in college, obviously, yeah. to get into med school, you've got to, you know, have a really good GPA. Um, and so the grades matter a little more. So one, it wasn't as uh, challenging as I thought it would be in terms of just like passing, which is good because it gave mm. me the time to work on osmosis. And there were two or three other things mm. um, my friends and I started during that time. Um, the people very impressed with the clinicians some of my best mentors and influences people like dr daniele rigamonti a neurosurgeon at hopkins uh came that way and i think that's that's the same thing with business school med school college i think one of the best things you can do is invest in those relationships with teachers it isn't just mm -hmm. about the content and the knowledge that can often be commoditized in fact i mean we do it on youtube so it's a lot of it's mm -hmm. freely available so you don't need a Nobel laureate to teach you about telomeres like we had at hopkins you can learn about telomeres on, on YouTube or just reading, but you do want to connect with that Nobel laureate so that you can dedicate, you know, a, a significant portion of your research career to the discovery of new cures and, and uh, processes. Mm. So I think that's what largely what was positive about going to that school, going to Hopkins. And then um, I would say the other thing uh, that's very different is once you're in med school versus business school or undergrad mm. is that everyone there is pursuing medicine, right? So it's a little more yeah. homogenous. And I think there's too much artificial competition in med school yeah. where like you have all these very type A students who are, you know, you have the same at HBS and other schools, but they're all kind of think that they're pursuing the same re finite number of residency spots, which is true mm. if you're trying to go into, you know, plastic surgery, orthopedic surgery, dermatology, you're really kind of competing against those people, like five other people in your class, but not 120. And so largely what osmosis was built on was, look, this is this is stupid that we're competing this mm. artificial competition, even though it's pass fail. Let's collaborate. Let's get a group together, write questions for each other, mm. share the best resources that we find um, and just work together. That's one of the reasons we called it osmosis was 
peer-to-peer mm-hmm. -peer learning. Knowledge diffuses not just from teacher to student, but between classmates. Um, that was an mm -hmm. essence of like our our ethos at Osmosis. So I would say we really, if med school was you know all unicorns and rainbows when we started, we wouldn't have started Osmosis. But we were yeah, yeah. very disappointed with the quality of education. Very disappointed with this unnecessary artificial competition that that could have been just mm -hmm. this class for some reason. Um, mm -hmm. And we decided to create Osmosis to solve or to address both of those issues. Definitely. What stage of med school were you? when you started on most is that, and I imagine that was kind of the founding story reasons as to why you kind of built it out. But what, what stage of the career were you at that point? So it's interesting. The, um, this is where serendipity comes into play where, you know, if I hadn't deferred my med school, I wouldn't have met my, my classmate and co-founder Ryan, who also happened to defer. Okay. So we both were kind of deferring and we both chose Hopkins over our second choice, which was Stanford. So both of us were deciding between the okay. two and independently happened to choose Hopkins over Stanford. So, you know, osmosis was very much a serendipitous thing that we both did that. Hmm. Um, you know, hmm. we started, I would say within six weeks. So um, the, oh, wow. my last name is Gaglani, his last name is Haynes. We were, uh, yeah. Hopkins wasn't super creative at how we, how they connected people in, in anatomy uh, class. And so just revert alphabetically by last name. So we were anatomy partners and we were quizzing okay. each other. And by the time we were done with our first block of anatomy and got into the second block, we started quizzing each other on, on nerves that innervated the leg. Mm. And we forgot, uh, within weeks, we, within mm. like weeks, yeah. we had forgotten that stuff. So we were getting concerned. We're like, man, this is like the first month in med school. We're forgetting stuff from like a couple of weeks ago. This is not, yeah. this is not bode well. So we started talking about how we could help ourselves and our classmates. And we didn't, again, intend to make a company. We just wanted to start hacking away at our own education. And so Ryan's a coder. Mm -hmm. He started building a platform based on some evidence techniques that, that we talked about. And I started getting a group together to populate questions to quiz ourselves. Because mm. one of the core, core ways to learn and remember things is called test-enhanced learning. It's actually doing practice questions, which I know mm -hmm. you both know and anyone listening to this who studied medicine or anything well, no. knows that yeah. it's yeah. an effective way to learn. Um, so within weeks, we started working on osmosis, but then we only took time off a year and a half into med school before going to the clinical years to, to start building it. Obviously, osmosis now is, is very, it looks incredible, design, aesthetics, it's all on point. What did you start with? Was it just pure practice questions that you can quiz each other on? Um, what was that the first thing you launched with? And was it website available to everyone? No, yeah, it was it was just available to our class at Hopkins, 120 students. Uh, we released the beta in time for our immunology exam. Um, got only like 60 of the students and then students who did it really liked it and um, decided to tell her tell other classmates and then we had all, all 120 using it it was all practice questions so essentially we crowdsourced practice questions based on the lectures we were we were learning um, and we had these groups so only Hopkins class of 2015 could be in this group but then class of 2014 wanted a group too so we created one for them this, when we were second year med students, the first year class wanted it. So we class, created a workspace like Facebook groups, class of 2016. And so it was all kind of insular. And then we added in the ability to upload documents in private groups so that now we could coordinate questions, um, question writing based on PowerPoints and documents. Um, it was only when Rishi and the Khan Academy team joined us that we started developing video content. And that's obviously yeah. what Osmosis is most well known for now. It's the most, yeah. yeah. As in um, the, the, the logo, the style of content and video is very new. Even because we were in the UK, we were using Osmosis. Pretty much everyone had a 
a subscription and it was medicine is very archaic and the books are old they were written 30 40 years ago and like it was much was like a breath you know fresh breath air coming in terms of the way they did it which was mm. really nice to see T- tell us a little bit about how now osmosis started to physically spread and when it started to spiral out of control in the sense that hold on a minute this is no longer a side little project. yeah no a side project or a note sharing project anymore when did it become oh my god we've got something actually yeah so we were still in med school and we started hearing from classmates uh, from friends of classmates at other schools who wanted to use it too um so uh, georgetown tufts northwestern and a few other places and then we had this benefit two things one is we had other students at Hopkins who had taken time off between their second and third year to, to launch companies. So we had the symptom checker mm-hmm. app created by friends of ours called David and Craig, who were two years above us, who took the risky decision to go to New York for a summer and work on their symptom checker app before going back to med school, finishing, and they're both practicing now. Um, the year above us, there was another pair of med students who created another company. So we had seen that it was possible to take time off without mm-hmm. any worry and you just go back. So the risk was low. And we decided to do a, a tech incubator called Dream at Health in Philly. Instead of going right into mm-hmm. rotations, we did that for four months, worked on a mobile app, launched it, got 5,000 users. Um, we did, made a wait list, mm-hmm. got 5,000 users, and then decided, let's take more time off and get, make those 5,000 to 50,000 and just keep yeah. making this as useful mm-hmm. as possible. Um, and then it was a slog. Like there's a lot of uh, excitement and momentum in the early phases of creating something. Yeah. There's always that energy and passion. But then there's yeah. this, you know, tough zone of disillusionment that you have to go through. But if you can kind of work mm-hmm. through that and stay focused and keep compounding, um, you mm-hmm. can kind of exceed your expectations. Like Ryan and I had no idea that 10 years later, um, osmosis would be reaching millions more people and, you know, be used yeah. for patient education. There are all these applications we had no idea that it would be when we were med students starting the thing. Um, and there's, that's one main lesson I would like to share too, is there's this concept called Amara's law. It's a, mm. a professor Amara who coined it said, we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short term, like a one-year basis. Mm. And we underestimate its impact in the long-term 10-year basis. Um, yeah, Bill Gates funny. paraphrased that to saying, we overestimate what we can accomplish within a year and underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. And that's because of, compounding right if you get one percent better every day at the end of the year you'll be 37 times better um so if you can stick through it and go through like the negative times which is why it was helpful to have a co-founder um you know and and as long as you you know you don't want to stay on a sinking ship obviously you want to course correct and adjust if if this is not the right thing to do Mm -hmm. but if you are able to stick through it if you believe it's something the right thing to do um you can exceed your expectations are are there any moments that come to mind when you think about those that point that dip so after the um, the rise the the ecstasy of the moment itself were there any particular dips that you thought oh that was close to me saying you know what i'm gonna pack it in were there any moments yeah no definitely i mean we were you know we always had the option to just go back to med school and i could Mm go i went to business school during the time so um we had that hedge where it wasn't like burn the bridges we have to do this um Mm. we had to coordinate where you know, Ryan and I had to be on the same page about this stuff, um, about how committed we were for many years. And we had to work through that um, and it worked really well. I would say a couple of things. One is competitors emerge. That's always an issue. But yeah. when a competitor mm-hmm. emerges, it means you're on the right 
path, right? There's, it means there's a, enough of an interest or a market or something that's fine if a competitor emerges. So, um, and I often view competition like collaboration. Many of our so-called competitors I've had on our podcast, uh, we link to their stuff. They've become really yeah. good friends. Uh, like Picmonic was an early competitor. I'm really good friends with Ron and Neil and Ken. Yeah. Um, you know, we just like to be good players in the space. So I, I know Majid and Sievert at Amboss really well. Uh, Peter and, yeah. and uh, Pascal and Stefan at Lecturio, the online med ed guys. Uh, I know Geeky, Geeky Medics, I think is awesome. They're basically <laughs> Yeah. Oh, we had him on our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Potter. yeah, yeah. Great people. And they're all like good people. They're all trying to improve medical education and, and uh, as we say, raise line. Um, hmm. So I would say competition early on was discouraging, um, but now hmm. it's more viewed as like collaborative co opportunities for collaboration. I'd say another thing is, um, selling is hard, right? Like, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, we're, we're a B2C business and the product spoke for itself, but that's like, you get the early adopters, you get the early believers and early adopters, but then there's this whole chasm between going from like the early people to then the majority. And that, yeah. that's mm -hmm. always been difficult, um, uh, to cross that chasm. It is actually a book called crossing the chasm that describes that as well as our first institutional programs very difficult mm -hmm. getting those programs on board. And then we had a few early on where we were just premature and we lost them. So it was hard to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, be broken up with by a med school. Um, but we learned from it yeah. and we've kind of grown from there. Um, and ultimately I think what got us through was just having a, building a team that also believed in it. So we, our passion fed off of each other. So we stuck with it. Mm, amazing. Tell us about, so I know you went to Harvard, did the MBA there. At what point in your career did that take place? Was it during this time as well when you kind of took the year out? Yeah, so took the year out um, and then did a year full time of osmosis and then went to HBS, did two full years, but basically made HBS. HBS was my secondary activity. Osmosis was still my primary. And I, I yeah. took classes mm -hmm. that let me use, like I took very intentionally took classes that elective type classes where uh, the deliverable was a project um yeah that you could use osmosis for so that i could use osmosis so mm -hmm. uh two classes in particular one was a class on how to um sales a sales class and i had five of mm -hmm. my hbs friends work with me on how to sell osmosis to institutions so it was like free consulting oh, wow. um uh, double yeah, dipping yeah. and the second was a global health global business class and the whole and they actually paid for me and a colleague to go to africa i hadn't been back in 20 years mm -hmm to go to Namibia and mm. give free osmosis to University of Namibia and University of Cape Town. And we did like a research project and business project, but um, that was one of the benefits. And HBS did a really good job of supporting entrepreneurship. The first money invested in osmosis out, out after Dream of Health were my HBS professors. So it was all net net oh, positive. Wow. It wasn't a distraction from the business. It, it was an enabler of, mm. of osmosis. So I know you said you didn't get around to finishing med school. So I imagine, <laughs> osmosis kind of catapulting and start growing at an immense pace and scale how so t work us through that decision that framework because obviously medics tend to be kind of risk averse i know you kind of hedged it because you could always go back did the framework in terms of okay we're going to continue doing osmosis we're going to delay becoming clinicians and graduating tell us a bit about that because that's quite interesting it's tough i mean i've talked to a lot of people at various parts of that journey i talked to pre-meds who are deciding do i still want to go to med school do i want to do business i talked to people in med school deciding on the same exact stuff. I talked to people who've done med school residency who are in practice who are mm. like, I don't want to do this anymore. Maybe I should go into digital health. <laughs> so I think the commonality is there's no right answer. 
it's all sort of mm-hmm. what works for you and very few decisions are irreversible right so like in my mind it was like i, I was fortunate in that hopkins let me defer a lot of other schools mm-hmm. um don't haven't most schools don't let you do that they let you take a year off but then you have to go back um yeah. and so it's kind of the burn the bridges moment but say worst case you have to drop out you lose the two years you did or what one year or three years whatever you did and you're like mm, i want to go back i actually want to be a doctor uh you can reapply and get back in right you lose time yeah time's precious but one of my friends his dad just graduated law school at 79 uh and it's those people wow. those people who are, who are pretty inspiring where it's like look, you can do it. Like you have time. And, and if you really care enough about something, you can, um, you can do that. I think yeah, one thing I would attribute like this rush to become a doctor to is, um, mm. so there are a couple of things. One is like student debt. Like if you get debt, you want to go through yeah. and get, make sure you have enough money to pay. Obviously that's a big problem in the U S I don't know how bad of a problem mm. is it, it is in the UK, but the mm. media is quite a, um... Yeah, I don't think it's as bad as America, but it's still a thing that's lingering at the back of your head and, you know, it's there, yeah. but probably not to the extent that America not, not, Yeah, not as bad. Yeah, in the US, <laughs> the, the median debt of a med student is $200,000. So, yeah. you, you know, if you're two years into that, you got fifty dollars to $100,000 racked up. You got to pay that back somehow. So there's this urge to go mm. back, become a practicing clinician, make the money and pay it off um, and start your life. I would say another one is like social pressure, like this random competition that we have where it's like, you know, people grew up, maybe they watched Doogie Howser and they're like, oh, this is 14 year old doctor. I need to be a young doctor too. Like, you know, I need to be the fastest I can become a doctor. Um, and it's like, for what? Like, you know, what's the point um, of, of that, of that artificial rush? What's the, sta- if you're playing the status game, that that's a mean, meaningless mm. zero sum game. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, there's no right answer. You don't want to follow the herd. You want to do what, what, what you believe will uh, basically fulfill your purpose on earth. That could be yeah. seeing patients or that could be starting a company. That could be neither of those, obviously. Um, and knowing mm-hmm. that you can bounce between the two. So I mentioned I'm still planning to go back and finish med school. Um, and yeah. you know, at this point, I feel like osmosis has reached the size and scale where I could step away uh, from full-time day-to-day mm-hmm. duties. And frankly, I already have. I'm mostly doing business development and thought leadership at this point. Um, and we have a team that's going to continue the osmosis mm. vision, mission, values, and we have a whole large publicly traded company, Elsevier, that's behind it too. So it's yeah. freed me up to be able to say, yeah, I can go back and finish med school, and frankly, mm. maybe contribute more to medical education or or, yeah. or healthcare by doing that. So um, yeah, yeah, it's kind of a ramble of of how I thought. About no, it, no, but, no. But one thing I'll say to to our audience is, I'm, I I love these conversations. I'm always happy when people reach out to me on LinkedIn or at osmosis.org, happy to take time and uh, at least email back thoughts, if not get on a call and talk through it. Amazing. Amazing. I'd love to dive deep into your sort of what your day to day was like in the early days of osmosis, because I think what happens is, um, so a lot of us who are maybe early stage entrepreneurs or thinking about starting a company, you think, okay, so what do you do at first? Are you always, are you just management from day one? Is it just about ideas and concepts or are you on the shop floor at first putting it down brick by brick? Um, what was it like in the early days and what does it slowly transition to in terms of your day to day? Yeah. Um, so in the early days, I think, you know, osmosis was successful largely because it was our problem. We had deep empathy with mm. the problem. I think that's essential mm. for anyone who's starting a company. It's either you have insight, unique insight and empathy into the problem, 
or you're spending time with customers. So obviously you've probably heard mm -hmm. of the lean startup framework, Steve Blank, Eric Reese got out of the building. That stuff is really important um, because you need that empathy, yeah. that deep empathy with customers. You spent, should be spending a lot of time iterating, talking through the problems, figuring out what they need. And there's all these things like vapor testing to understand if there's a there there before you, you know, spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars of money or time mm -hmm. building a product that maybe nobody nobody wants. Um, so did a lot of that. I basically talked to tons of students. I was using it. I was actually developing questions back in the early days. Basically, the the there's a great uh, investor advisor named Naval Ravikant. He started AngelList. Mm -hmm. um, highly recommend his book, The Almanac uh, from Naval Ravikant. Um, and he says, you know, learn to build or learn to sell. Um, those are the two most important skills. And if you can do both, you're unstoppable. Um, and so mm -hmm. Ryan was building the product. I was building the content and then I was selling. Um, so, mm -hmm. but then I was also doing the random stuff. Like you have to do, make a bank account. You have to <laughs> pay your initial <laughs> employees. You have to literally, we all moved into a house in Philly. There were four of us. We moved into a house in Philadelphia. And I was, you know, the other three were engineer types. So they were up till 2, 3 a.m. waking up at 11. The garbage, your trash had to be taken out by 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. for the for the pickup. Mm. So I was like the CEO of the company and the garbage, like the guy, the guy who took out the trash and cleaned the house. <laughs> yeah. um, so you have to do anything. Mm. And that's kind of fun because, you know, I still, in some ways I miss those days when we didn't have any money, when we had to hustle, when we had to be creative. Yeah. Um, because mm. it was also just fun, like building with, with a core group of people early on. Yeah. No, I think that's quite an important moment, isn't it? Because you, you're, as they say, you're very resourceful when you have nothing, right? You find the ways and that's what really allows you to scale and flourish, isn't it? Yeah. Um, another guy, Paul Graham, you may have heard of him, the Y Combinator guy. Yeah. Um, he has a great set of essays. Yep. Also recommend that to anyone starting a company. He has one essay. My favorite is do things that don't scale. So, you know, he was famous for helping Airbnb, which went through Y Combinator by basically telling Brian Chesky and his co-founder, he's like, okay, where are your customers? They're in New York. They're in S uh, Brian and his colleague were in uh, SF for the Y Combinator, but their customers, their initial customers were in New York. So Paul Graham was like, so Rami, why are you here? Like, why are you here in SF? <laughs> customers are in New York. Yeah. Had them go to New York, interview these customers. And that's where they had one, that, one of many unique insights, which was, that the, the building a two-sided marketplace like Airbnb, yeah. one of the most important things to get traction on the site was the 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 um, the rental properties that got the most traction were the ones that looked the best. So they basically hired mm -hmm. professional photographers for all their rental properties to make these awesome uh, collages, montages, and galleries, which then skyrocketed how many people were booking on Airbnb. Yeah. It's those when you talk to the customers where you get the most insights where it's like aha because very rarely is your first intuition around your startup idea like osmosis our first yeah. intuition was people are going to upload these documents they're going to you know we have this tech platform we don't need to make content we're just going to you know crowdsource content and then link to other content like khan academy and elsevier that's how we got to know them mm. first that was wrong that was a bad insight like it, it got us a, a certain level but it didn't get us to the scale that we are now so we had to iterate and yeah. be like, no, we need a content strategy. And that's why we brought on the Khan Academy medicine team to build out this content strategy with us. Um, mm. And um, and yeah, so I would, I would recommend like talking to customers, doing things that don't scale early on. No, definitely. Amazing. At what point, so I know you mentioned um, kind of a few of the first checks were from your professors at um, Harvard Business School. Tell us about that financial journey where you're kind of generating enough revenue to keep growing because 
any any tech startup i'm sure everyone knows is super expensive to get it off were you making enough money did you have to kind of go out and speak to vcs and did that change the direction and things at osmosis yeah i mean i, th- I would say like the last 10 years uh, have obviously been a great time for founders uh, because of the bull market uh, there's just been a lot of money yeah. floating around a lot of uh, exciting stories about companies that went from zero to 100 million revenue in two or three years and and obviously yeah. these wonderful founder stories of like life-changing outcomes and impact um some of which crash and burn, like We Crash is an interesting documentary, but you know, Adam still still made out really well. And, um, and yeah. so I would say fundraising, we did 10. So we the first check was Dream It Health Incubator. Yeah. Uh, it was the most expensive check. That's one thing. One lesson is the, f- the first checks are obviously the most expensive because you aren't worth that yeah. much. So you get pretty diluted. Mm. And that includes your co-founder. You know, choosing a co-founder is mm. a difficult, is, a, is the most dilutive event, depending on how you split up the equity. So you want to choose that right and have have ways to undo that. Um, now, there's a lot of ways to raise money. I think it's understanding what type of business you have and how committed you are to it. I think a lot of people, mm-hmm. because of the bull market over the past decade, have viewed fundraising in and of itself as as the goal and the celebration. Mm-hmm. And you can do really well with certain fundraising. Now the markets have changed a bit, so it's a bit more difficult. But you had all these stories of companies doing one, two, three million in revenue that were raising at hundreds of millions dollar valuations. Yeah. And then if the founders took any secondary on that, that's still a good outcome for them, even though it may not be yeah. the right thing for the business uh, or the investors or the employees. Um, and so I would say being very thoughtful about what type of business you want to build and how committed you are to it. Mm. Because the moment you take investor money, uh, if it's a, especially if it's a VC, you're in it and you're kind of committing to growing the company at a certain rate um, and trying to get them an outcome that's a venture style return, which is oftentimes they're looking for 10 X plus returns um, mm. versus bootstrapping it, asking your friends and family, um, you know, so we were the only company out of our 10 company class at dream at health that didn't ask for money after we finished. Cause we still, you know, we were okay accepting zero salaries. That's one of the benefits of being in your young twenties, no family, no, mm, no yeah. obligations. So we didn't accept any salary. So our burn was very low. Um, and mm. we just wanted to run on profits, which was great. Gave us a lot of that, intuition. I feel like if we had raised money too early, we would have scaled and wasted blown a lot of it. Um, mm-hmm. And then when we had a working formula, we're like, okay, it'll take us uh, three years, three or four years to make hundreds, hundreds of videos at a current rate with a current mm-hmm. burn. Or if we raise a little money from my business school professors, from Alan Patrickoff at Graycroft, who became a really influential mentor and figure in our history, then then we can do that in one and a half years. So when it's clear that mm-hmm. the money will be used to, to jumpstart growth, then you can do it. Yeah. Um, but just being really aware, because the fact that we raised so little money relative to peer mm. groups meant that when we finally had an acquisition, a, an exit event, yeah. it was it was pretty life changing for us. Whereas there are a lot mm. of founders mm. and companies that raise too much money that doesn't align with their business. And then they wind up mm. being eaten um, at the end. It, it's just not good for employees or the founders or even the investors. Absolutely. No. Yeah. Tell it, definitely. And I think it seems 10 years is a long time. And I think the fact that you stuck with it, got through it to the kind of point now where you're kind of acquired can kind of scale it even more, reach even more millions of people. Tell us kind of like some of the major obstacles you faced and the mindset you had to overcome them. Cause I think everyone always assumes overnight success, you know, you're doing super well. 
but the reality is far from it, right? Yeah, this, on my podcast, I had this guy, Burke Smith, who's the CEO and co-founder of Straighter Line, who has been talking about online college credits since like the mid-2000s, 2005, 2006. Mm. And it was, very, it was before Coursera, before edX. He was really early to the party. Um, and so mm. he said, he joked with me, he said, um, the saying is your timing is perfect if you stick around long enough. Right. So you basically <laughs> like you would dress for the party and set the tables and stuff, but the music wasn't playing until five years later. Mm -hmm. But if you stuck around long mm -hmm. enough, then the music's playing. In fact, in many ways, COVID, remote learning, healthcare education, you know, COVID mm -hmm. really accelerated the interest in our field in osmosis too. So we were sure. getting a lot of VC, P private equity kind of inbounds because of you know, we mm -hmm. stuck around long enough. Um, yeah. I would say obstacles along the way, you know, getting your first customers, right? Obviously getting to $1 in revenue and then maybe a million dollars in revenue. Like those are some of the core uh, milestones. Um, number two, not being distracted by, uh, you know, these early awards we got or early press releases or tech, uh, you know, articles were really helpful in building momentum for osmosis. But sometimes founders can get distracted. And, and I was one of these Whereas like the point was to raise money or the point was to um, mm. win another ed tech award somewhere. Ultimately, the best money comes from your customers because it pr proves that you're creating yeah. value. So that's key. Transitioning to a B2B business where we went from just being B2C and users paying for us to then B2B where we now have hundreds of med schools and nursing schools and PA schools who are paying. That was very challenging. Mm. It's still challenging, but it's, you know, we're, we've obviously achieved some scale there. Um, as we got bigger and bigger, basically making yourself uh, redundant. Like I think the key mm. for any leader, any manager at an organization is to develop your people well enough that when you step away for two weeks or two months, uh, the company is even better because it makes that person stronger. Mm. They're able to take over what, what you were doing and then gives you the mind space or the ability to, to kind of carve out what you do next for the business. Mm. Um, mm. So we made some really good executive hires early on. And we made some very bad executive hires that were okay. very bad for the culture, uh, especially during COVID. Mm. Uh, there were two or three that, that were like that and that we're still kind of repairing from some of those those issues. Um, oh, wow. So I would say those are some of the core core challenges that come to mind right away. No. Just to pick up on that, what's, what's a good way of developing good company culture? Um, and talk to us a little bit about um, hiring, hiring and firing. Wanna... Yeah. I want to talk about those in particular. I would say like a lot of our success has been because of our culture. Um, you know, it's a place that people love to work. And um, one of the things that makes me most proud, so obviously the things that make me most proud are the, the reach we have, right? The fact that we have millions yeah. of students who are learning by osmosis and schools and patients. Uh, this is one of the most exciting things is patients who are learning with our videos, um, which is a substantial portion of our views. Um, but other than that, the other part is the culture and the fact that many of the people who bet early, their early careers on osmosis uh, in 2015, 2016, 2017, pretty much all of them are still with us. And they all started as independent mm -hmm. contributors, as consultants making $20, $30 an hour. Now they're all making six figures. They have teams under them. Um, they've got a lot more confidence. They've developed all these skills. They're being recruited, which is great. I've had some mm -hmm. people, including a guy who started our data team in London. He's a Rhodes Scholar. His name's Ashwin. He's a great guy. Mm. Um, he built our data team, learned a lot along the way, got this great brand under him, whose osmosis did well. Um, and Spotify recruited him. And we had an honest conversation oh, wow. about that. Amazing. And it was the right decision for him to go to Spotify. Um, 
and I mm -hmm. saw him in London a couple of weeks ago. So that's make that's one of the things that makes me most proud is when you, as a leader, like cultivate people, find them, give them a shot, and then they kind of uh, exceed all expectations. And we have that across the board. Mm -hmm. We have uh, you know at least half a dozen people like that. Um, building company culture. It, this is one of those concepts in business school that unless you've been in a culture like built built a company culture or been in an organization where it was a good or a bad culture, it's such an abstract uh, abstract mm -hmm. um, concept that it really is the essence of everything. So uh, two things I'd recommend. One is we made our culture at Osmosis, the way we treat our teammates is the way we treat our customers and vice versa. So everyone who goes through Osmosis, who joins Osmosis goes through a relationship building workshop that I put together on how do we build relationships? Because many of our competitors, many of our customers, those people eventually become teammates um, over time. So mm. we never burn bridges. Mm. Um, we could have viewed Elsevier as a competitor and we didn't. We view them as a collaborator. And then years later, mm. now they're actually our teammates. Um, same mm. thing with, I mean, there are a whole bunch. I have hundreds of examples like that. Two books I'd recommend for building company culture. One is um, Tony Shea, who unfortunately passed away. He's the one who built Zappos. Uh, Delivering Happiness. It was a super influential book on how to build culture. Things like the way to build your value system is look at the founding team and the, the next level of employees and what are their core personal values? Make those the company values. So we went through a whole process to make those values, to first articulate the values um, and then to make that an essential part of our DNA where every week we still reinforce these values. People get awards for values. Um, uh, it really permeates the culture. The second book I'd recommend is Ben Horowitz's book, um, What You Do Is Who You Are. So it's not what you say, mm -hmm. it's what you do. And he talks to a bunch of different examples of companies and organizations that have built their cultures based on real actions as opposed to um, kind of what sounds nice. Uh, and so yeah. I, would, I would recommend those two books. Ben Horowitz also, you know, obviously of Andreessen Horowitz, wrote the other yeah. book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is also an amazing book for anyone who's mm -hmm. um, founding a company um uh, yeah. so yeah I, I would say culture is critical yeah, amazing amazing and what about the the aspect of uh, protecting that culture so once you've built it how do you protect that culture from say the wrong hires i think all founders uh am i correct in saying that we will all hire the wrong person and um, and then it comes to making of having the difficult discussion right um what do you do in those circumstances how did you how did you deal with that yeah and so the the, the hires that i've made that didn't work out most were rushed hires they were i was getting pressure from vcs or internal employees mm. to to mm. basically bring someone in um sooner than we should have and you know mm. the way i compared it you know it's like blood transfusions there's no you know you could have type a type b type o it's not good or bad none of these are good or bad but if you put type b blood in a type a body yeah. there's gonna be a negative reaction yeah. Um, and that's what happened. And uh, it scales. The, the higher up you hire for that, the more scale that negative reaction has. Um, so when you hire an exec who's bad, who doesn't work out for the culture, it can really negatively build, you know, mm. affect the culture. Mm. Um, I would say, you know, there's that adage that reputations take a lifetime to build and seconds to destroy. So, you know, you have to yeah. constantly protect against the culture. For hiring, my board member, Mitch, gave me some of the best advice, which was you hire people twice. You hire them on day one, and then you hire them on day 91. So whenever you bring someone on, oftentimes at Osmosis, we bring them on as contractors first to see how it is to actually mm -hmm. work with them. 
and very much frame that as, do you actually like working with us? Right. It's, it's a two way thing. It isn't just, do we like working with you and do you perform, but do you like osmosis? Do you like your colleagues? Do you like what we're working on uh, and how we make decisions? So day one higher and then day 91. So making it clear, normalizing the fact that this is going to be a temporary thing. Like it could be three months, it could mm -hmm. be more. Um, and then reassessing that there's these two questions that every manager should ask when they do annual performance reviews or biannual reviews, which is one, would I hire this person again? And number two, um, if this person said they were leaving to another company, how, how hard would I fight to keep them? Um, and those two questions, we, I'll, I'll be honest, there are people who we are not, uh, we've never, we haven't lived that fully. There's definitely people out of osmosis who at some point should go to another company, um, for their own development, for osmosis's development. Um, and the key is to hopefully bring enough self-aware people enough, uh, as, and then coach our managers so that they're the ones doing that, uh, helping with those decisions. Um, but yeah, I would say hiring the people you surround yourself with is more important than anything else because that also affects your quality of life. There were times yeah. when, when I had these hires who did not match our culture where I wanted to leave osmosis. Like that's how, that's how negative, <laughs> that would be the wrong move. That's, honestly, yeah. that's how negative, crazy. that's how negative this stuff can be. So I, I, I won't undersell it, but like the people you spend time no. with is truly what matters in this It's more than your revenue, more than any of this stuff. You can have yeah, a small I company agree. that makes very little money, but it's with people you love. That's awesome. Mm. You can have a huge company with people you hate. And that's not awesome. Like your quality of life isn't based yeah. on how much money you're making. It's based on the people mm. you surround yourself with. No, I think that's sound advice. And I've, you know, work in previous organizations, you know, we're, we're, we're human nature, right? We, we have relationships so that it can be the worst thing going into work and you don't want to be there anymore. So I'm glad you echoed the same thing. Kind of on a more positive note, uh, tell us about this acquisition we'll save here. How did it come about? I know you always saw them as, you know, we're working on the same field, less of a competitor. Um, how did it come about and what does that mean? How, how has things changed? Yeah, so we um, we first met them in Philadelphia, actually, early on in 2014. Uh, one of my friends made a, I was looking to connect with the publishers to start creating collaborations where we would link to their content and do like a licensing type deal. Um, that's how I got to know mm. the Khan Academy team. That's how I got to know Picmonic. That's how I got to know Elsevier. So I got to know... Um, Four people, Madeline Hyde, Kathleen Reed, Jim Merritt, and Lisa Grady, pretty well during that process. Mm -hmm. Fast forward seven, eight years, all four of them are still at Elsevier. And that was a huge thing oh, wow. for me to know that many of the people who I had met back then were still at the company, which showed longevity. Mm. Elsevier's mm. also been around 140 years, 1880s when they were started. <laughs> yeah. And very few companies are around, around that long. Everyone's heard of Kodak and Polaroid, that was the biggest company. That was like the Apple of the 19, I think, 80s or 70s. It's mm. gone, right? Like, I mean, we still mm. have Polaroids and Kodaks, but they're more like wedding gifts, uh, party mm. covers. <laughs> um, and so for a company to have that staying power and have people who've dedicated 5, 10, 15, 20 years of their life, it meant a lot because that's ultimately what we're trying to build with osmosis is something that will outlive me, outlive other people is continue to, to provide benefits to society. So last year we were going through the decision of, okay, do we raise more money? We had a lot of interest mm. and even some term sheets for raising more money. Do we um, continue growing independently and just kind of shore up, tighten up the operations, become profitable again? Do we 
entertain these strategic acquisition discussions. And every one or two years, Elsevier checked in. We had several other companies, mm. some publicly traded companies that were checking in. Because once you reach a certain scale over 5 million revenue, then you become exciting to private equity firms as well as potential buyers. Yeah. Um, so last year, we, it was kind of the paradox of choice. We had a lot of choices. We decided to test the market mm. and run a process. And in that process, Elsevier came in uh, very strong. We had several other companies mm. that were, were kind of trying to get us in, in, in their door. Mm. But ultimately, it was just the perfect match between what's good for the team, what's good for our vision, and what's good for our investors and, and uh, the people with stock options, which everyone at the company had stock options. So um, mm. it would just wound up working really well. And then how is it working out now, uh, eight months later? Yeah. You know, there's some growing pains, like um, we're transitioning from uh, Google Suite to Microsoft Office in the next week. <laughs> we're really concerned about that. But like... Those are such small mosquito bites because, you know, yeah. the vision is remarkable. We're actively working with their nursing team and their clinical solutions team, which works with 9,000 hospitals around the world to do, to take mm -hmm. our content and apply it to more people than we ever could have imagined because of Elsevier. We have a whole team translate our content into Spanish, uh, which would have taken oh, wow. us years to do independently. Um, a lot of our teammates have opportunities to go in other parts of Elsevier. Um, and mm. we have Elsevier teammates joining us right now to and helping osmosis grow. And then finally, especially now with all these tech companies laying off people, hiring freezes, um, Elsevier is such a, like a, a, a solid company in terms of how they're performing yeah. that like we're still hiring. And so uh, oh, wow. me, yeah. it's like such a such an important thing that our team feels safe, their jobs are good um, mm. and they can just focus on the work as opposed to, you know, will my company, you know, do a mass layoff, which, uh, you know, we've never, we've never had any indication that could happen because we're still hiring. Hmm. No, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Amazing. What does that mean for you now? So I know a lot of companies, you hear about the acquisition or the exit, kind of the founder sticks around for about six months and then goes off and, you know, Musa Bahamas lives his best life <laughs> um, or kind of works on a second startup, but this time focus on a B2B instead of a B2C. Well, how has your role changed and what's the plan moving forward with you? Yeah, no, good question. So I'm, I'm very fortunate in that we have a deep bench at Osmosis. I have a COO, Derek mm -hmm. Apanovich, um, who's done this thing before. He scaled Ultimate Medical Academy to 15,000 students a year um, who were doing it online, uh, hundreds of millions of revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and then our VP of people, Hillary Acer. And those two basically are the managers of Osmosis. They run, mm -hmm. run it every day, run it every week. Um, I'm much more involved in business development. So I'm getting out there. I have my podcast, as you know, and I've had people like Mark yeah. Cuban on and um, uh, Elizabeth Iro, who's the yeah. chief nursing officer of WHO. And so really trying mm -hmm. to raise the profile of osmosis and Elsevier, as well as form business relationships. We have several deals mm -hmm. with schools. I was just invited to give a talk at University of Melbourne in Australia. So mm -hmm. those kind of things are what I'm doing, the thought leadership, um, some strategic planning, and then also um, real business development. As far as the next steps, I've talked to Elsevier. I'm really excited about going back to med school. Um, so I'm still working okay, on, yeah. on that to go back to med school. Still working on a plan around that because I think ultimately, like going back to med school, using Osmosis, using Elsevier products to finish med school, yeah. I think is a cool, it's, a, it's personally <laughs> it's a full circle. and a cool, cool story. So uh, I don't know. What do you guys think yeah. about that? It, yeah, we're, we're rooting for you, man. It will be incredible to go back to med school, graduate. In all of this, though, what your, what your family's saying, because obviously they're sitting there like, what is he really up to now? Yeah. Okay. I, I assume that my mom and dad are listening to this. So yes, mom and dad, I'm definitely going back to med school. Right? <laughs>
We're gonna, we'll cut that bit out and just send that to reassure them because they're sitting there waiting okay when is my son going to bloody complete medical school you know the deal you guys know, both know the deal yeah. the, I know. The, the doesn't heart. matter how successful osmosis will ever be yeah right you haven't completed med school to them all right nailed it nailed it so, so uh, no that, that 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 is incredible just to think of the sheer number of people that have got through med school courtesy of osmosis and the educational videos you put out yeah um, and the founder is yet to kind of go back and finish <laughs> up but you know life is all about the story you tell at the end right and this is one of those chapters which is which is incredible um the one thing we do want to kind of end up and tie off is there's a lot of people that want to f- follow your footsteps that have big ambitions lofty dreams um what advice would you give to them you know individuals with a clinical background maybe still in med school trying to decide it, so much advice um i think one one of the core pieces of advice is just reading right like reading mm. widely reading consuming a lot of content has been essential and then applying that content not just spending all your time consuming it but like you get these mm. mentors i mean i mentioned naval ravikant i mentioned uh mm. warren buffett's advice like these people i don't know naval and warren but like i've read their stuff mm. and it's really helpful mm. advice um uh, and then in-person networking. So I mentioned any anyone who's interested can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm the only yeah. Shivagwani on LinkedIn or shivadasmos.org. Happy to to mentor or connect that kind of stuff. Um, I love. And there are a lot of people who do that. And I'm I'm only here because I've had that as well. Um, I would yeah. say those are the two key because ultimately advice is so contextual that um, yeah. you know one could say stick with it and keep building what you're building. But you know maybe you're building something where you need to actually tack and tweak. Because, you know, you don't want to yeah. waste five years building something that nobody wants. So so I don't want to say like these generic pieces of advice, but the, the core pieces of advice are read as much as you can, learn as much as you can, and then find these relationships and mentors and not formal mentors, just people like I have people younger than me who've mentored me in different areas. So it's not like oh. you need someone who is ultimately going to be your LinkedIn rec or your professor recommends you find people you can learn from and enjoy spending time with. And ultimately, I think that's what will make you happy and successful professionally and personally. No, Amazing. definitely. That's sound Amazing. advice. And those are probably two of the advice we also recommend. It's been a massive, massive pleasure having you in the show. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you've been one of our guests we wanted on for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, but I want to thank you again, Shiv. I know as most will go from strength to strength, I will be seeing your graduation gown and photos soon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're going to be rooting for you. But... We'll come as a photographer. Love, right? love, You've got your photographers. Love to have you guys. Right? I mean, my, my parents no. would love to meet you, especially after that last so. <laughs> <laughs> No, but um, no, it's been a massive pleasure. Um, so thank you once again. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, we will see you all next week.